Hello, and welcome to a special bonus edition of Buffy and the Art of Story, Season 5. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author, story expert, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Now that I've finished all the episodes of season five. Before turning to season six, I wanted to talk about season five and Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a whole with some special guests. This episode, I'll be talking to Rachel Wharton from Kobo Writing Life. Rachel Wharton left her hometown at 17 to follow her love of literature to the English department at York University. After graduating with her BA, Rachel spent some time working odd jobs in both Manhattan and Sydney before returning to her true geographical love, Toronto, and working with the wonderful team at Kobo Writing Life. Rachel is a self-described huge nerd and will talk anyone's ear off about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Quick note, our discussion includes some minor spoilers. Rachel, thank you so much for for coming back to talk about season five. I'm really excited to have you here. I am so excited to be here to talk about Buffy. Um, Anybody who knows me knows I can talk about this show ad nauseum. I know this is an audio platform, but I am wearing a Buffy the Vampire Slayer button down. And I did light two Buffy candles for good luck before I started. So... I, I can confirm the button down, but wow, I did not realize you had Buffy candles as well. Oh, I have many. So cool. <laughs> I have some <laughs> buttons, but I don't have candles, so I'll have to work on that. Season five, where does it fit if you have a ranking of favorite Buffy seasons? We, <sighs> top, bottom, middle, you don't have to have an exact number. That's that's tough. I love a lot of season five. And I think we'll probably get into this, but I love Glory. She is one of my favorite big bads. I think as a whole, season three is probably up at the top. The back half of season two, I think, is some of the best television. Season four is at the bottom for me. Um, I did not care for Riley or the initiative. Riley is just... just a, a charming young man who I'm happy got on that helicopter. Good way to put it, yes. Season five, I wouldn't say is perfect. When I was initially watching, um, I am the eldest of two. I have a younger sister. And so a lot of the Dawn, I don't want to call her annoying because I don't want to call my little sister annoying. But a lot of that really hit close to home. So some of season five, I'm a little bit on, but I would say it's probably number three. Firmly in the top three. That's pretty much what how I feel as well. Things shift around depending where I am in rewatching. Yeah. It's interesting to me that you said that about Dawn, that you're the older sibling. I was the little sister. And on behalf of little sisters, I I find her annoying. And actually, it was somewhat of a similar age difference. My brothers are seven and nine years older than me. They were both a little more tolerant than Buffy, and I was more of the, uh, oh, I'm just happy you're letting me hang around, little sister. So I, I tried to be very not annoying. So I think I think that's part of why Dawn, uh, the way she is written, I, I have to, to work to get around where that's in later, see, later rewatches, that was a little bit easier because I already knew that's the character. I also think like my sister and I are much closer in age. Um, she is two and a half years younger than me. 
But our relationship when Buffy season five, season six was airing, uh, we were both in high school together. And so our relationship was very, didn't see each other in the morning due to extracurricular activities, see each other in the hallway and she's wearing my sweater. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then just drama ensued. So I think like that aspect of the sibling relationship, which was reflected in the show, really, really hit me. Yeah, there is probably also a sister to sister aspect there. Yeah. So one of the things I find interesting, I think everyone does in season five, is this aspect of this spirit guide who looks like the first slayer telling Buffy death is her gift. And I wonder if you have thoughts about how that affects Buffy when she hears it. And then as season five continues, how that influences her. So I think Buffy has kind of had to grapple with the idea of death and her job a lot, especially since season three, because I think that faith came in and was very much like, we're slayers, we're like, we're killers. Like we, this is what we do. And Buffy has always viewed herself more as the hero where rather than we're killing vampires, we're killing demons, despite her title being the slayer, she's always kind of viewed herself as I'm saving people from these baddies. So I think that especially since Faith, she's kind of had to grapple with that and she's also had to grapple with her own mortality. Like the poor girl died at the end of season one. Yes. And then now correct me if my chronology is wrong, but Fool for Love, the episode in which Buffy almost dies and then Spike walks her through killing three slayers is before death is her gift, right? Yes. Yeah. So yes. I think that that also like grappling with her own mortality of, you know, every slayer has a death wish which is what Spike tells her. I think that is something that she's also had to grapple with. And then to hear death is your gift. It's kind of which one is it? Is it my gift to the world is the fact that I'm going to die? Or is it that my gift to the world is that I kill people? And I think she kind of focuses on the latter. My, my gift is a bringer of death. And I think that that really kind of messes with her head. And then as the season goes on, especially as we lead up to the gift, that's when it kind of hits her where it's, oh, my death is my gift, but it's not in a really dark and twisty way. It's I can save the people I love by doing that. And that is my gift to them. I am sacrificing myself for not only the greater good, which is what her job is, but to save those who are the closest to her. I love that point about season three, and I never made that connection. I often thought about faith bringing out in Buffy that there is a, an excitement and a joy to doing the job, which also I think makes Buffy uncomfortable, but is somewhat freeing that, yeah, mm -hmm. it is okay to admit that you enjoy the fight, but then there's so much complexity with that because is it okay, Faith, uh, especially by season five, We've seen her on Angel go through a redemption arc, but we don't really know where where she's at now. And at that moment, doesn't look great for her for her life. So it, it, that joy idea would still be troubling for Buffy. But I hadn't thought about it in the terms you mentioned of Buffy seeing herself as a hero and the protector. Faith is much more like we're killers, we're slayers, that's what we do. And she has trouble with that line of well, what's the difference if you kill a, a villain who's a human versus one who's a demon where Buffy has always grappled with that. Yeah, Buffy has a very 
very firm line as to what is okay and what isn't. Whereas faith is just, you know, want, take, have. She will just do what she's got to do to save the world or at least serve her own purposes. Yeah, and I, um, I never so, yeah. thought about whether that death is your gift would to Buffy sound like, well, that's Faith's view that, hey, that is what you're here for, that that's what being a slayer is. It, mm-hmm. it, it might make you too hard to love, even though the spirit guide tells her, you know, you have love for all of us. Once we hear that thing that we fear or that confirms our fears, it's easy to filter out every other part of that message. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that Buffy has always viewed herself as the hero. So viewing herself as a bringer of death is, or as I wouldn't say necessarily as a villain, but she's the thing that monsters are scared of, right? Hearing death is your gift when you've had all of the experiences that Buffy has had up until halfway through season five, I think that's going to mess with your head a little bit. When I started doing the podcast before that, I always saw Buffy's choice and the gift in the way you framed it as now it clicks and she sees this. I can save not just the world, but I can save my sister. I can save my friends. And this is a gift. And she's so at peace. I often read books about Buffy and so forth, but maybe because I dug into it more and really focused on these questions, I started seeing more where people talk about her choice. Do we see it as death, death by suicide? Is it driven by her mother's death and that overload she had with a catatonic state? And I, any thoughts on that? How much influence do you think that that I has? personally don't know if, any of the things that led up to the end of the gift influenced Buffy. I think that no matter what happened by the end of season five, if if Buffy's life was perfect, if if Angel still had that fancy ring, if Buffy was happy, if Dawn was like a legitimate sister, if all of her friends were happy, if Joyce was alive, I still think that Buffy would make that choice. I still think Buffy would sacrifice herself to save her sister. And not to be sappy, but I would do the same because her family, her friends, her, the people who are important to Buffy has always been such a core of the show. And I think one thing that really messed her up when it came to Joyce was that it was a natural death. It was something that she could not prevent and something that she couldn't take back. And so I think that, yeah, I think that Buffy would always make that choice. I don't think it was necessarily death by suicide. I think it was death by sacrifice which I view differently. I am not an expert in either field, but I, I think that no matter the circumstances, if Dawn is in danger and the only way to save her is to sacrifice herself, Buffy's going to do it. Because like the show says, Dawn is a part of her. And so a part of her will continue to live on. Buffy's always going to save her sister. She's always going to put those who mean the most to her above everything else. I feel similarly. I think it it makes it more dramatic that she has this depth of despair and then she does have this peace and this clarity, not because she's ending things, but because now she understands the message and she understands that being a slayer did not make her hard and unable to love, that she she does love and she does care. And I feel like that's the resolution from a story perspective. Buffy resolved that by realizing her fears 
were unfounded. Being a slayer hasn't taken away her humanity. And then she does, yes, what I agree. I think she would have done yeah. regardless because that is what Buffy does. I also think it sets up some interesting philosophical things because there is that point she says to Giles something like, if these are the choices in this world, I don't know how to live in it. And it makes me think about the episode where her friend Ford comes back and he's dying of cancer and he wants to be a vampire and he's saying, I don't have a choice. No. And, and she says, you don't have a good choice, but you have a choice. There is also that issue. You don't always have a good choice, but there's a choice. And she makes this choice that fits her values and who she is. In the speech, when she's throwing herself off the big rickety platform, she even says to Dawn, like the hardest thing in this world is to live in it. So live for me. And to me, that reads as, I don't want to make this choice, but it's an impossible one. And I would rather you live on and the world live on than me not, you being gone and an apocalypse happening. Like it's an impossible choice, but Dawn's safety and Dawn, like her love for Dawn and her friends will outweigh her continuing on. Yeah. And I also think like when you talk about the catatonic state, in the previous episode, she falls into this hole, but it's her love of her friends and her like Willow reaching out to her that pulls her out of it. And so I think that is also like her desire to fight and protect her friends will always be the top of Buffy's priority list, dead or alive. Yeah, that's a good point about that episode because finally, yeah, Willow walks her through things. Willow helps her see that she felt guilt. But finally, I, I want to say Willow says something like, I'm going back to the world where you're needed. And it's more or less, yeah. come back if you're, if you want to help people there and you love the people there. And, and she does. Yeah. Now, did you know, I, I, because I watched Buffy as it was airing, so I had no idea about the ending of The Gift. Did you know the first time you watched it that something just so huge was going to happen or what was going to happen? I'm tr I honestly can't remember because I did not watch Buffy from the beginning. I came to Buffy a little bit later. There is or there was a TV station in Canada called the Space Channel. And they used to run Buffy reruns for like two, three hours a night. And I had never watched the show. And then I caught an episode in season six live. And I was like, this seems like something I would like. And so I then started, not to age myself, furiously recording the episodes on a VHS tape. I watched many on VHS too. <laughs> yeah. So I was watching season six live. Oh, wow. While watching seasons one through the beginning of six. And so I knew something happened with Buffy, but I didn't know what, I didn't know how. And I, to this day, you put on Christoph Beck's score from the end of the gift and I am a puddle. Oh, I am yeah. a mess. It hits me every single time. So even though I knew that something was going to happen at the end or somewhere in season five, I knew that something was going to happen to Buffy. I didn't know what, and I didn't know how it was going to play out. And it still ruins me. And even though I've seen it countless times, it will always be an emotional gut punch. Yeah. I, I tear up every time I see it and it, doesn't, yeah. It doesn't matter how many, but that is a fascinating way to have watched Buffy to to be watching season six. And it sounds like it must have been 
into season six because you didn't know what had happened to her. Yeah. Where if you watch from the beginning, they bring her back. So oddly enough, yeah. I think the first episode I watched was Tabula Rasa. Oh, that was such a good one. Which like, no spoilers, uh, Michelle Branch shows up at the end of that episode. And I am a huge Michelle Branch fan. Massive. And when I saw her on that, I was like, ah, like this is, this is my type of show. And then I just started watching the reruns. And luckily timing worked out where like the Space Channel reruns were starting at around season one when I started. So I was really lucky timing. And I think I ended up catching up to season six by the time season six ended. But the season six finale was the first Buffy finale I watched live. That's, that is Wow, I'm kind of blown away. I don't know if I've, I'm sure there is are other people who've had that experience, but usually I've talked to people who either came to it later. So they were, they saw an episode and then they were able to go back and watch it all in mm -hmm. order, or maybe they started in season four. I know a number of people who started in season four, watch four through seven. Oh, and they stuck through it too. I've talked to people who season four is their favorite, which, same, you know, and sorry to listeners out there who that's true. It's, it's hard for me to understand, but I think that is one of the strengths of the show, that episodes where one person is like, oh, that is the worst Buffy episode ever. <laughs> there, There is still so much good in, in them. Well, and I mean, season four has my favorite episode of all time, which is stereotypically hush. Oh. Like, I think that episode is brilliant. And it is in the middle of arguably the worst season of the show. So I think like even the best seasons have real stinkers and the worst seasons have any winning gems. Like, yeah, the, um, the show's wild. The two Faith episodes in season four are among my very favorites. And then going on to, you know, finish it out in Angel. That is, yeah. to me, Faith's arc is, it's hard to say the best, but one of the best. So yeah, it, I, I'm always kind of surprised because I go into season four uh, and I'm like, oh, right. The Faith story and Oz yeah. and... And Willow and Tara and yeah, like... so much. Yeah, start season four and like the freshman is fine. And then like the Kathy episode is funny. And then Riley shows up and I'm like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> but there's so many good episodes in it. It's such a, this show is a gift. So you mentioned, uh, speaking of differing opinions, that Glory is one of your favorite villains and she's not one of mine. And I've been sorting through that as I do season five, like why that is. But I would love to hear what about Glory appeals to you as, as the season big bad. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate or review Buffy and the Art of Story wherever you listen or tell a friend about the podcast or about the book editions of Buffy and the Art of Story or post or share them on social media. Any or all of these things will help other people who love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and especially love taking it apart from a story perspective, find the podcast. So I think there's two aspects to this, love of the character and love of the actor. So one thing you have to understand about me is that Buffy, favorite TV show, Bring It On is one of my favorite movies of all time. Claire Kramer is in Bring It On and she's fantastic and she's so good. I didn't realize 
is that? I probably... She's Courtney. Oh, wow. I really enjoyed that movie. I wouldn't say favorite, but I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I have to go watch again, which will be very fun. And what I'll say about Bring It On is that, well, there are a couple of lines that, like, language is always evolving. And so there are a couple of lines in that film that are very problematic now, a couple of uh, language choices. But... As a whole, the premise of the movie and cultural appropriation is still so relevant. Enjoy the rewatch. Email me after. I will. Um, I was actually talking with a friend about Glory earlier this week. And one thing I love about her is that she's so unapologetically feminine and so unapologetically girly in a very stereotypical way, mm. like cute dress, nice heels. And I find that a lot of the female characters in Buffy and a lot of the like, grappling with femininity and like power in the show is Buffy well you can't be a cheerleader because you're the slayer you can't be the stereotypically feminine thing because you have all of this power and that's kind of something that is perpetuated throughout the show and then Glory shows up and she is high femme heels cute dress minions of men bubble baths gets angry when she breaks her heel and yet is the strongest villain Buffy faces, physically speaking. So my niece is a big Buffy fan and she's 40. And she was saying how the show resonated with her because when she was in high school, she felt like to be feminine, to wear makeup, to do her hair would make her not serious. She avoided it. And it was much later that she started feeling like, oh, yeah. no, it's it's fine. I can be. She's a, a theatrical designer, a scenic designer, and it, it took her a long time to say, oh, it's okay. Like, I can look good. I can wear makeup. I can do my hair. And I can be a great professional. And it and I don't have to be guy-like. And, and she said Buffy really helped her with that. And I think that's something that not to paint everybody's experience with a similar brush, but existing in a patriarchal society where men hold a lot of the power, there is pressure to fit into a man's world, especially in something like set design where it's a lot of dudes. Yeah. And like Buffy as a whole does a great job breaking that down. You know, you have instead of the, I think what like the line is, instead of the blonde girl running away from the killer, she's what the killer is running away from. Buffy as a whole did that, but Glory really encapsulates that I'm a prissy girl and I'm going to whine about it and I'm going to get my way and I'm going to stomp my foot and just be this most stereotypically girly thing, but also the most powerful. And I really loved that. This may give me a new, a new lens. It gives me a new way to look at Glory. And I think you're about to say something else about why you loved her. And I jumped in. The only other thing is like, she's a sarcastic person and uh, it's really relatable for me because I am also incredibly sarcastic. That is something I love about Glory is a lot of her lines. I think she gets some of the best lines. Yeah. All the villains except Adam, I think, on the show get really good lines, but uh, she is particularly uh, her sarcasm, her yeah. wit. And I like, though she's still not my favorite villain, I like that she expresses her anger as someone who grew up with the idea that you shouldn't be angry. And to be fair, my mother instilled that in my brothers as well, <laughs> so it wasn't just me, but certainly that's a message that's really culturally reinforced for women. Absolutely. So I enjoy that too, that Glory gets angry, expresses her anger, has no hesitation about it. And, and that I find very fun about her too. Yeah. And one thing that just, just occurred to me, um, 
all villains view themselves as the hero, right? Like that's what makes a good villain is that they believe they're the good guy. But with Glory, all she wants to do is go home. She doesn't want to take over the world. She doesn't have big aspirations. She just wants to get back to her little realm. And I think that that's really kind of fun that instead of it being like, you know, the mayor wants control or the initiative and Adam want to, I don't know, make more. He wants to create his master race and his own little like Frankenstein army. Yeah. So and like Angelus wants to destroy the world, whereas Glory just wants to go home. She just wants to take her little minions back to her hell dimension and have a good time. And I think there's something really kind of funny about that, that the most dramatic finale, the what makes Buffy have to sacrifice herself is this kind of mean girl who just wants to get her way. And I think it's kind of fun. It is interesting to have a villain like Glory doesn't care if she creates chaos on this world, but that isn't that isn't actually her goal. No, absolutely not. Now, one of the issues I have with Glory that I only realized as mm-hmm. I started breaking down the episodes is that for so much of it, she's she's not acting. She's threatening Buffy. And I understand from a story perspective why this is in the body. Buffy is grieving Joyce in the next episode. She is as well. And we don't see Glory doing what a villain would probably do take advantage or at least press her advantage and she doesn't attack any of Buffy's friends despite saying she will until pretty far into the season when she goes after Tara. So do you have thoughts on on why that is? Did that bother you? How does that fit for you with with a villain if you've thought about it? I actually hadn't really thought about it and I think that's because the plot device of Ben is just so clever. Because if you're like, well, where's Gloria? It's like, oh, it's Ben's turn to drive the bus. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, So that's kind of where my brain always went until uh, you sent over the questions. So, I mean, I think it doesn't make much sense that she doesn't just go and beat the living crap out of people. But I also think that Glory understands that, what am I trying to say? So I don't know if Glory really knows that Buffy knows. That Buffy knows about... That Buffy knows exactly where who the key is. Oh, okay. Sh- Glory thinks that she has an idea. She's connected to it, but maybe... Yeah, but she doesn't necessarily know. Okay. And Glory doesn't want to show all of her cards. She doesn't want to be like, oh, well, I think you know I'm just going to beat the crap out of you and hope it works. She's waiting until the right moment, until she's figured it out. Because, and then she finds the weak link, which is... Tara. But I also think that just, you know, Ben being Glory and Glory being Ben really just smooth that over. And as we kind of see as the season goes on, Ben's humanity is starting to kind of leak into Glory and some of his empathy and his desire to not stick his hands into people and eat their brains. But I really just think that Ben is a really good plot device and they did a really good job because then you have an excuse like why didn't Glory go and beat someone up during the grieving. Oh, it's because Ben had a shift at the hospital and Glory was having a brain nap. I like your thought about she doesn't know who in Buffy's circle knows. So if she kills the wrong person, maybe she kills whoever had the answer. And and I'm thinking back to Blood Ties where she has Dawn cornered and Dawn is asking all these questions and we think Gloria has figured out Dawn is the key, but she says, oh, you don't know anything. And that's when she's ready to brain suck her yeah. because she's like, oh, I, I realize you don't know anything, so I might as well get something out of you. And that's when she does that to Tara, when she realizes she can't 
get any, that she's not the key. She can't get any information. So I think that's a, a really good uh, a theory about why she doesn't just start killing off Buffy's friends because maybe, or torturing them because you might accidentally kill them. I yeah. probably would have liked something more explicit on that. But I don't know. That's always a, a judgment call. Like how, how much do you spell out and maybe... It, it was enough there that for you that worked and for a lot of people that worked. Yeah. Well, and she does go after Spike once, right? Like she beats the the living crap out of him. Yes. She yeah. is trying to torture information out of him. And I also like, I love Lori. Sometimes I don't know if she's the sharpest crayon in the box. And so she just hasn't put two and two together. She keeps walking straight into the point and then taking a sharp left and missing it, which I think is also just comedy. And another reason why I love Glory is because she's so funny. Yes. I honestly, until we had this conversation, I hadn't put much thought into it because it's just Ben and Glory is just like, she's so close and then just misses it. And I think that that is the plot device that the the writers were going for. So the comedy of it, of like, well, why isn't she, why isn't she beating the crap out of him? And it's like, well, she just hasn't figured it out yet because she's, she needs to suck a few more brains before she can. I think you're right. She is not portrayed as the smartest villain. Yeah. My thought is probably the mayor is... Diabolical. When it comes to he is yeah. strategy guy, he sees 10 steps down the road. He so is good. really smart, which is part of why he's so interesting. Do you have thoughts on least favorite, most favorite villains in Buffy? Definitely. Do I have thoughts? Um, <laughs> least favorite is season six, the trio. Do not care for them. I think especially now with just the gatekeeping of nerd culture and the rise of really toxic masculinity, the trio just really hits differently now, which I'm sure you will get into in season six. Glory, one of my faves, love the mayor. Do not care for Adam at all or the initiative. Yeah, I'm not a big fan. Yeah. My favorite part about Adam, um, looking back now, is that he has a floppy disk slot in his yes. chest which is just <laughs> that he slides in phenomenal angelus is incredible uh, like i said the back half of season two is phenomenal storytelling i think the master was a great initial villain a great setup villain but he's not much more than that season seven i have mixed feelings on i don't know if we have time for me to really dive in and i don't want to go too spoilers yeah, season seven the, the, the first, first is, is that's a challenging villain I it think. really is Oddly enough, just to go on a little bit of a tangent here and without giving any spoilers, but the main plot, not the first, but the first plan mm -hmm. in season seven, I actually read in a Buffy novel when I was in high school first, because I used to read all the novelizations of Buffy um, as oh, an incredibly cool person. Really? And it's a Spike and Drew story and Spike and Drew have the same idea. And that's all I'm going to say, because people who know what I'm talking about will know what I'm talking Ooh. about. And anybody approaching this for the first time, just don't read any of the novelizations. Can you can you tell me which one it is? Do you remember the name? Um, if you, I will look it up. Yeah, that'd be great. Real quick, I can Give always. One. Yeah, that'd be that'd be awesome. Because I only read one or two of the novelizations and didn't didn't quite get into it and stop. But I would love to read that one. It's called Spike and Drew. Pretty maids all in a row. Okay. As you said, if if anyone hasn't watched season seven yet, then don't <laughs> don't do that. Just don't <laughs> stay away from this book. But I remember watching season seven and being like, I've seen this before. And then I put two and two together. Yeah. So I have mixed feelings on season seven and the big bad, but you no, know, uh, the mayor, Glory Angelus, 
top three. I'll have to, I feel like I have to rethink Glory a bit now, but definitely the mayor and Angelus are are high up there. And to the extent Spike was a villain, but he has such a overarching arc. I mean, his too, like Faith, his arc is one of the most fascinating things about Buffy to me. I agree. One of my most prized possessions is I went to like a Comic-Con situation here in Toronto and got a photo with James Marsters and Juliet Landau. And it is oh, nice. one of the life highlights was meeting Spike and Drew because I love them and I love Spike's arc. And I know he's a little bit problematic, especially when you get into season six, but he's so good. And the, he's so funny. Yes, and no just, kidding. You know, we love a vampire <laughs> yeah. who loves a soap opera. So a, a lighter note, what did you think of the Knights of Byzantium or the Knights of Hack and Slash, who I, I forget who calls them that, but uh, I find them sort of fun, but I found mixed mixed views on them as well. I think they were fun, but unnecessary. I guess it kind of added another layer of stress that there was, you know, not just Glory looking for the key. It was also this group of random knights. Story-wise, I get why you want that. You want more stress. You want more more at stake where you're not just running from this one big bad, but also this other like medium bad. Aside from a really fun, that really fun car chase scene with the RV. And the horses, yeah. They didn't really add a lot. That might be part of my frustration with Glory in the season because they're they're another villain who yeah. they turn up, but then they don't really do anything. And then suddenly there's this huge mass of them chasing Buffy, like you said, right when you really want to up the stakes and overwhelm her. And I get that. But they feel a little bit convenient. Underdeveloped. And under, yeah. Underdeveloped. And I like them because I'm always into uh, issues of religious beliefs and how they think they're doing what's right. And Buffy thinks she's doing what's right when she says we, we should be on the same side. And they're like, nope, that's not what our God says. Like, we have to do this. So that always fascinates me. But I agree that they don't feel necessary and I suspect now where you can have a season of whatever length works for the show that maybe you you wouldn't have them because you didn't you don't need 22 episodes and I also think there was missed opportunity there to either dig deeper into the idea of like blindly following a religious cult for a lack of better words or going deeper into the fact that to defeat them, Buffy was going to have to kill a bunch of like humans. And you could like, they could have gone into that a lot more. So I think that there was definitely a missed opportunity to go deeper into them. But I also think that even though there were 22 episodes, there wasn't a lot of time to do that because you also had glory. I don't know. I feel like they were such desperate or not desperate. Disparate? Disparate. Thank you. Using the wrong vowel over here villains something was missing to bring it all together and i felt like it was too buffy was fighting two different battles even though like they were about the key glory was about the key they were against glory glory obviously does not care for the knights but i think that there was just something missing to make it more cohesive that blind devotion aspect thematically you see that with glory's minions as well so it would have been interesting to see that the different sides of that developed. I don't know when they would have done that. There's no time. Yeah, especially with everything (laughs) else that happens even before Glory is uh, on the scene or very active. So I'll ask a a very heavy question to start winding up, which is 
as I've gone through season five, I've started to wonder, is death the big bad for the season? Like, yes, it's glory, but death or maybe grief. And I'm not sure that's true. Maybe that's just more of a theme, but I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. I don't, I think maybe a theme, but I don't think it's the big bad. And I think that's because while Buffy goes through a lot of loss, and especially Joyce, the body as an episode is art. It's perfect. And the grief that Buffy goes through is so significant and really changes so much of who she is. But big bads are fightable. Big bads you can defeat. Even if you die doing so, you can fight them. Mm. But you can't fight death. Mm -hmm. Death is unfortunately inevitable. And especially Joyce's, because like I mentioned before, it was natural. She died of natural causes. Buffy couldn't prevent it. And so I think to be qualified as a big bad, you you have to be able to fight it. And I think that the theme of death runs so heavily through season five, but in a way where like Buffy can't defeat it. Buff, it's it's not death versus Buffy. It's death's coming for you, kid. Death is your gift. Yeah. So I don't know if I'd qualify it as a big bad, but it's it's definitely a theme and warning to listeners that darkness does not let up at season six right this this will be an ongoing and i guess in a way it has been a theme but never it's never been so central and it will right fair warning will become more and more central to the show but Mm -hmm. i love that point that yes you can't you can't fight death you might be able to put it off you maybe or not and the only question is is when when and how, I suppose, but that's what we see throughout exactly. with with Joyce, with Buffy. So it is not a villain. It is just, it exists. Anything else you want to talk about with season five? I know, I feel like that is not a good question because you and I could just go on forever. So anything right now that you really want to cover that we did it? Oh man. I mean, season five, I think is one of those seasons that at the beginning feels a little bit all over the place. If you're still doing holiday shopping and there is a writer or aspiring writer on your list, check out writingasasecondcareer.com slash plot your novel. That's all one word, plot your novel. And you'll see the Writing as a Second Career online course, How to Plot Your Novel from Idea to First Draft. This is a work-at-your-own-pace self-study course. It includes video, worksheets, and exercises, all of which your writer friend can download or take online entirely at their own pace. As of December 2022, it is $139. Find out more at writingasasecondcareer.com slash plot your novel or follow the link in the show notes. If you're looking for gifts in a somewhat lower price range, you can go to writingasasecondcareer.com and check out the books on writing menu item. You'll find all nine of the writing as a second career books there. I take that back all 10 because there is a new one and it would make a great gift book. Fiction writing as your second career. It is available in ebook, paperback, or hardcover formats. 
the season kicks off with Buffy versus Dracula, which is just a wonky, fun episode. What's really interesting is like season four ends on a really weird episode too. Like every, I find every other finale to premiere really is cohesive. You have Prophecy Girl into When She Was Bad. You have Becoming Part Two into Anne. Like everything is really cohesive. Graduation Day into The Freshman. And then you have Restless into Buffy versus Dracula, which is just weird. Yeah, interesting. I never thought about that, but you're right. If we really dug in, maybe there's something. Maybe the cheese man (laughs) is somewhere in there, but the cheese man represents Dracula because I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. So like that I find really weird. And then, I mean, the reveal of Dawn, I think is masterfully done. Just no Mm -hmm. explanation. She's there. She's just there. And I think that is like as much as Dawn annoys the living crap out of me. I do think that that is really well done and really interesting storytelling. But then once season five kind of gets its claws into you it's got some of some of my favorite episodes like fool for love is again i love spike but i think that episode is so good and really shows for the first time like even though she's already died before it really shows buffy scared for the first time of death and then the body which is one of the first times that buffy really needs to confront that she can't defeat death all the time that even though she's a superhero right there's still going to be a lot of loss. And again, I think that episode is phenomenal. I've never seen such a beautiful, realistic portrayal of grief of the moments after you lose somebody. I love season five. I love Buffy. I could talk about this show until the end of time. I think it's one of the one of the best TV shows out there. I just thought of a connection between oh, yes. Tell me. the end of season four, the dream thing, and Dracula because... There's that scene where she's putting the um, the paint on her face, and I think it's Riley calls her a killer. And then Dracula calls her a killer, and she doesn't like it, and he says something about, I don't remember what he says, but she's like, I oh, know, it's like I paint clowns or something. Yeah. But it really is about that sets her on her, am I a killer, mm-hmm. is being a slayer. Nice. A killer, which was floated out there. On the other hand, so many things were in that last episode that uh, where so many abstract things and themes. Yeah. I mean, the last Slayer is there. Right. Trying to destroy them all. Yeah. I I feel like you could sort of read into it whatever you want to, but maybe there was a little intentionality about that. But I still think that you hit on something where it really it isn't that thing where you could look at it and say oh yeah and this Mm -hmm. then they picked up season five and and bounced off of that episode yeah well thank you so much for talking season five with me i know you and i could oh it's been my pleasure we could talk forever and maybe you'll come back and we'll talk about season six which would be awesome i would love to because i just realized we talked about buffy for almost an hour and i didn't even bring on my favorite character oh no Oh, no. Well, just quick spoiler. Who is it? I love Anya. Oh, yeah. We will have to talk Anya. And she's got some great season six stuff, too. She does. And great season seven And stuff. seven. I guess yeah. I was thinking that as well. I like the way she develops in, in those seasons. I do as well. I love 
Anya so much. And in another one of my favorite episodes is The Wish, when you meet Anya for the yes. first time. That yes. episode's real good. All right. So we we clearly have to talk again. We got to do this again. <laughs> Thank you again. I really appreciate you being here. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this bonus episode of Buffy and the Art of Story. Come back in two weeks for more about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, particularly season five with Roberta Lipp of the They Coined It Mad Men podcast and Carrie Walsh of the Sex and the City Coaching Carrie podcast. If you want to hear more Buffy and the Art of Story content and would like to support the podcast at the same time, you can do so at patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lily, that's L-I-S-A, M as in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y, or at buymeacoffee.com slash Lisa M. Lily. You can listen to back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalily.com slash Buffy Story or lisalily.com slash YouTube. Comment on the episodes or connect with me on Instagram or Twitter at Lisa M. Lily or by visiting the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page or email your comments to BuffyStoryPod at gmail.com. Find book editions of Buffy and the Art of Story at LisaLily.com slash Buffy Books. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman LLC, copyright 2022. All rights reserved.